Cultivating Place is made possible in part by support from the American Horticultural Society, celebrating 100 years of trusted, high-quality gardening and horticultural information and community since 1922. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This week, we gain a little perspective with a lot of altitude as we begin a two-part series on gardening at elevation in Colorado. Issa Caddo is a fine and textile artist, a gardener and a writer. She is a mother, partner, and activist living in Woody Creek, Colorado. Her multifaceted high-elevation gardens are steeped in generations of family, in connection to community, and in love of place. All of this feeds her creativity and her soul. Issa's Mojo Gardens are featured in Under Western Skies, on which I collaborated with photographer Caitlin Atkinson. Isa, I am just so delighted to be speaking with you again, and even more thrilled that I'll be joining you in Aspen this summer as the Jessica Caddo Dialogues speaker for the Aspen Center for Environmental Studies on August 11th, where we are going to finally meet in person. Welcome today to Cultivating Place. So glad to have you. I'm just thrilled to be on your program, so I look forward to the conversation. I have described you very basically, Isa, and I would love to have you introduce yourself to listeners um, by maybe giving us a mission statement on your current relationship to plants and gardens and the natural world personally and maybe professionally as well. Oh, a mission statement. I mean, that... um is definitely a challenge because there's so much that gallops through my brain around that. But I, I think what I would like to do is just to show people they can garden anywhere and in any space. So even though I am not a professional horticulturalist, lots of people drift through my gardens and I love sharing what I've created. And for me, it's about inviting people in, about making those connections, about having a garden for our writers and residents who live on the property with us during the summer, and just pulling in a little bit more joy and wonder. Well, the joy and wonder is certainly at play in all facets of your life. And before we we get into the garden itself, I want to have you take us back to your earliest influences and the, the people and the places and the plants that grew you into a woman for whom this kind of interrelated life would be a, a valuable way in the world. So maybe let's start with where you were born and raised and then move to, to your path towards both artistry and gardening? Well, I was born actually in San Antonio, Texas. And uh, my family has a lot of ties to Texas. But we left uh, when I was four. And my father was in the Foreign Service. So we traveled a lot. We lived all over the 
place. Um, and the first garden that I remember was when my father was stationed in El Salvador. And the gardens were just amazing. I was six, and I spent all of my time playing in the mango trees and in the gardens and in the flowers. And I that left a deep imprint on me, even though I'm in the opposite kind of climate now. <laughs> but um, <laughs> to be sure, but a lot of those forms, the very organic, uh, this idea that you sort of drop a seed in the soil and just grows, you know, um, that lushness definitely comes into my work. And I'm a, you know, first and foremost, a colorist. And I think that everything that I was exposed to as a child informed my own color theory. And so El Salvador was just incredible. Um, and then we moved to DC and to Northern Virginia, which is another lush climate. And I spent all my times in the woods uh, bird watching, which may not be part of the garden, but I began to really be interested in um, the wild world beyond mm. and in edible plants. There was a series of books called the Foxfire books. Oh, God. All yeah. sort of, I loved those. I loved them. them and I would, would try to sort of whittle sassafras things. And so um, it wasn't until I was an adult woman, I lived in. New York. I had a, a a terrace garden, but unfortunately, the neighboring cats would were always a problem. And um, but until we moved to Colorado, that I really started down this path because I had the space, and the only cats were the bobcats and the lion. So that's my trajectory, it, rather simplified. Were there gardeners who uh, oh, you know, like formed your foundational models? Absolutely. So my mother had an incredible garden in Colorado. Um, they had a second home close to where I am now. And it was an incredibly beautiful, classical English flower garden. And she was almost obnoxious about it. Uh, strutting that garden in front of people, but it really was a spectacular <laughs> garden. And then my godmother was a huge gardener and she really taught me how to pot things and had great reverence. She had an incredible orchid collection. And she, my parents retired back in San Antonio and she lived on in sort of the same, the mother-in-law house with them because um, she really had no place to go. And she had, she transformed their gardens in San Antonio. And so I learned uh, from her as well. Uh, her name was Stevie Tucker. She was remarkable. And my mother's name was Jessica Caddo. And they both uh, were my spirit guides, to be sure. Mm. So you have this kind of dual pathway, uh, one towards being a colorist, uh, and that that sort of manifests itself in in several ways, one of which is the garden. Take us down the other pathway of your your colorist work and and your training in that and the kind of artist you are at this point in your working life, Lisa. Well, I started off as a painter and I came from a family where you really didn't, you know, being an artist was not an acceptable occupation. It wasn't 
like, you know, being a lawyer, you know, that's easy to say at a cocktail party. When you say you're an artist, <laughs> people are like, oh, oh, what do I do with that? That's, well, I think I'll inch away toward the cheese tray. But so I went back and studied art after college. I didn't study art in college and really got interested in color theory, but realized that my color theory was uh, that uh, the outdoors taught color theory more than learning about it and painting about it. So I developed a whole system of reading color. I don't know if I can translate this in, in terms of geography. So a lot of times when I was traveling, I would note like the clothing on a clothesline and I would note what colors they would be and how to mix them. And then I would go back at night and just do simple stripes and really learn how color vibrated with uh, upon color in the natural world. And of course, here at 8,000 feet, there is very little atmosphere. So uh, the light has a very different, that's why, you know, George O'Keefe loved that clarity. Mm-hmm. Um and it, the atmosphere is so much more dense on the East Coast uh, because there are literally more particles. And that affects, affects how the light and color play together. So I see that all the time in the garden. And it's, uh, as I mentioned to you when we first started talking, it's, it's a feedback loop. And you find that colors work together and vibrate together that you never would have realized they could otherwise. Um, so. I hope that answers your question. I think I just was rattling on and on. <laughs> no, 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 no. So at this point, you're, uh, I love this sort of, you know, geography of color and um, the color of place and how it's different because I think many people will, that will resonate with them even though they weren't immediately conscious of it. But, you know, the difference of the way colors vibrate or we receive them energetically in our perception, whether we're at the ocean or we're on a mountain or it's dry or it's humid. I think people will recognize that immediately, even if they couldn't have articulated it. At this point in your, uh, how your artistry manifests, tell us a little bit about that. So um, learning about color is a continual education. And, and I, think that when whenever you stop and you think you're an expert in something <laughs> you're always humbled right and so mm. that is why I'm always fascinated when I, someone says oh my gosh I only want yellow and white in my garden and I, I think you get stuck that way and I think um, you have to experiment I certainly experiment as a painter um, and garden is the same way. And we all know that plants have their own intelligence and will literally drift to the part of the garden that they like the best. So I have let that happen in the garden. I'm not as controlling as some other gardeners because I like to see, I like to see, oh my God, that phlox looks great blooming next to that rubecchia, and you wouldn't think it would but something about that acid pink and the acid yellow. Okay, I've learned that lesson. Um, you know, vibrate and complement each other. And it's, I'm a learner by doing. So this 
is a constant um, state of fascination and education. And I go back and forth and back and forth. So tell us, so at this point you paint, you have a, a, a little studio called Isa Caddo Studio. It's based out of your home and garden there. You do paintings, you do uh, certain clothing items and, and lines of these. Tell listeners ab- about that and, and the not only the color, but some of the content of them as well. So I drifted into um, textile design. My husband has been urging me to do that for years and a couple of other friends. And I tumbled into that without any training. And this is something that I really think we've gotten into a bad habit in our society that we have to have all of these uh, formal education, you know, that we, we have to stay in a lane. And um, so I swerved into this design lane and I hired a team to help me with my uh, prodig- prodigious gaps in education and learned a lot about textile design. And we started making um, scarves and uh, uh, we do housewares. And we really started the business at the beginning of the pandemic. Oops. But we sold, we got into a lot of stores because we were selling masks and and gaiters and face coverings. So we um, expanded in a time that you wouldn't think anybody would be expanding as a small business. But it's been really lovely working with a team, which most artists are solitary. And so that's been uh, a terrific lesson as well. I love textiles and everything I do, almost everything I do is um, informed by my gardening sensibility mm-hmm. and my attraction. Yeah. And I have a, I deeply love birds. So I did an endangered bird series and we also plant a mangrove for every scarf, silk scarf we sell. Um, uh, one line of silk scarves goes back to a a women's cooperative in Costa Rica on Shira Island where the women got together to plant mangroves because the clear cutting of mangroves destroyed their livelihood. And the women figured it out and they planted 12,000 mangroves and they've restored a portion of their island's habitat and fisheries because it's a subsistence living community. So uh, I, you know, the world doesn't need more stuff and I love doing this, but I could not in good conscience create something that doesn't get back at every turn. So we try to partner with a lot of conservation groups. And Conservation International is the one we partner with uh, vis-a-vis the mangroves. Yeah. And one of the things I love is that in, in, your, in your paintings, in your textiles, you, you see the lessons you are learning in both motif and color work. You know, so you see those acid pinks, you see those acid yellows, you see you playing with them, you know, from these lessons you took from your garden. And that full circle of, you know, the garden to your eye, to your hand, to the the world, and then bringing it back around in contribution is not a small thing. And it's, it, it really 
reinforces for me this idea that our our gardens, um, no matter how big or how small, are these powerful agents for positive contribution in the world in in myriad ways. And so I just I love kind of parsing uh, all the the ways that that people find with their gardens. So now let's let's move to the garden a little bit. How did you get to Colorado? How did you start your garden there, Isa? Well, we moved from New York for a year. I had this property and we have a tiny cabin on it. And um, I was having some health problems. So we left New York and we said, we're going to try this for a year. Our daughter was tiny. I was trying to get pregnant again. And we wound up staying. And um, we built uh, a little, the cabin is very tiny. And we built a house and built a garden around it. And in the meantime, my mother died, but I gathered all of her seeds and divided a couple of plants. So a lot of those descendants are in the garden, which uh, she had an incredible delphinium collection and, um, and lupin. And so that is a constant source of joy that she is in the garden with me. So, um, and I've taken cuttings and things from other people's gardens and put them in my garden. And um, I'm, I, I would probably be one of those madcap English lady who's, ladies who's always sort of taking little rose cuttings. Um, <laughs> I do that with, with succulents, um, you know, on, on someone's, uh, in someone's alleyway, or I've collected hollyhock seeds, which are everywhere. Um, so, uh, you know, always adding to my pile of eccentricities. But uh, so that so that's how the garden evolved and how we got out here. And when I first came out here, everyone's like, oh, you can't garden here. You know, it's such a grow- short growing season. And I have a little bit of um, contrarian in me. So I was determined to create a vegetable garden so I could feed my family and the flower garden. And I learned how to extend to the harvest through you know, row covers, and I have a little hoop house. And yes, you can garden um, in a short climate. And to be honest, the climate is lengthening and changing because of Mm, climate change. mm. And every gardener Mm. knows this firsthand. Um, It doesn't matter what side of the political aisle you are, the evidence is there. So that's even while I've been here for 17 years, it's so clear how swiftly things are changing Um, from the kinds of birds that come into the garden. The migratory patterns are changing. It's just wild. This is Cultivating Place. Issa Caddo is an artist, an activist, and an intrepid gardener at 8,000 feet outside of Aspen, Colorado. We'll be right back for more of her garden life story. Stay with us. Thank you. 
Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners like you and by generous support from the American Horticultural Society. Soon to celebrate its 100th anniversary, the American Horticultural Society has been a trusted source of high-quality gardening and horticultural information and connection since 1922. Today, the mission of the Society blends education, social responsibility, and environmental stewardship with the art and practice of horticulture. Members of the AHS receive the award-winning flagship magazine, The American Gardener. Free admission and other discounts to more than 345 public gardens with the Reciprocal Admissions Program, plus discounts on books, seeds, programs, and more. Listeners of Cultivating Place can receive a $10 discount on the annual individual membership of $35 by visiting www.ahsgardening.org forward slash cp. For your annual membership to the American Horticultural Society for the special Cultivating Place rate of just $25 a year, head over to www.ahsgardening.org forward slash cp and keep your eyes open for an article on Cultivating Place and Under Western Skies coming up in the American Gardener. Hey, it's Jennifer. Every time I speak with Isa, the first time was interviewing her for Under Western Skies, and then again now for this episode of Cultivating Place, I am reminded again of the many lessons of the garden, brought to us daily in relationship to its plants, its seasons, its connections. Lessons well known by us all, but maybe a good idea to remind ourselves of anew sometimes. Lessons like joy and wonder, tempered by humility. Lessons of hard work and consistency. Lessons of paying attention. Of the wisdom of collaboration and teamwork with others, like elk and deer, gophers and birds, beetles and bees, and human neighbors too. Lessons like the Tao of compost, of generosity and contribution back in this fabulously beautiful, colorful, fragrant feedback loop of reciprocity, which is, of course, articulated perhaps most eloquently by Robin Wall Kimmerer in Braiding Sweetgrass. All of this abundance, generosity, humility, hard work is echoed for me over and over in Issa's stories of garden, of family, of place. We're back now to our conversation with gardener and artist Isa Caddo of Isa Caddo Studios outside of Aspen, Colorado. Isa's gardens, which include an open-range ornamental garden, a cut flower garden, and an enclosed vegetable garden, were dubbed Mojo Gardens after a beloved dog. We're back now with more from Isa on how her art, her contribution to community, and her garden go hand in hand. So remind listeners your um, 
outside of Aspen, you are at about 8,000 feet, a little more, a little less? Yes, we're at exactly 8K. And I, I think there's some like sort of funny, if as long as you think these things are funny, statistic that you have a reliable frost-free zone from like July 15th to August 9th or something like that is the- <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, um, really June 20th, uh, to the first week of September. <laughs> Cause there's so many different microclimates. I right. know it sounds, you know, and, and again, what is fascinating about plants is how they adapt. So because I so collected seeds from my mother's garden and uh, I had a couple of peonies and which I grew from seed which you can do and the peonies are incredibly hardy I mean they have weathered um, inches of snow and as long as it as the snow covers the garden even if they have buds and there's not a freeze without snow which is devastating mm-hmm. it acts as an insulated uh, blanket um, yeah. And snow is, so yes, that's a part of, but I have, you know, very hardy oriental poppies, but they do adapt. And um, so that I would say, if you are in a tough climate, give your perennials time to adapt, let them adapt, because they will. Um, They're like us. And um, so that's, yes, there's rigors and it's a little extra effort to put it mildly but it's so worth the extra effort so um, how big is your garden and and tell us about the process of you know uh, you you went by this quite quickly but you came to this space because you were trying to address some pretty serious health concerns and issues and moments in your life and the the garden and the the land, you know, kind of met you where you were. Take people on that process of of building the garden because you hit a couple of obstacles that are important, I think, for listeners to to hear. Right. So we built our house, um, and then of course, you know, there's, there's the wasteland that happens post construction, and it's really just a hideous process. And we had an all we have an all green house. It's geothermal and it's solar. Uh, electrical solar heating system. So I, I wanted a um, a garden around it, and the garden encompasses the whole house. We hired a landscape uh, uh, contractor, and it turned out to be a disaster. And um, then the recession hit, and we didn't have um, the capital to we were already in huge debt with the house. So I was complaining to my sister, like, what do we do? We're living in the middle of a mud pit. And she said, if there's one thing you are, it's resourceful. And I was watching our neighbor take all of his manure and compost to um, at, down the road to the dump. And I flagged him down and I said, hey, if you don't use any fertilizers or anything, start dumping on my property. I got another neighbor to do that. Mm. And then I just started building compost and I do it to this day. And I changed the soil from the top down and I started hand bearing. And this is crazy. We hand bury all of our compost, um, everything. 
um, into the garden. Yeah. Describe exactly what you, what, what you mean when you say that, like, what do you collect in the kitchen? And then when you say we hand bury it, describe that process. Cause it's, it's good. I will. It's so because it, our soil was so compromised and, and, uh, nutrient poor, I, um, started reading about composting and you can't really compost very effectively in bear country. At least I couldn't figure out how to do it. But if you bury it 18 inches down in the ground, cover it with uh, compostable cardboard soil and a rock, then the compost goes directly into the garden. So it's not a high tech solution, but it enriches the garden and it over the years, you have to be patient when you're a gardener, has completely transformed the soil. And I do have help. I have a lovely uh, man who comes in with his family. Um, it's a family business memo. They grew up on a farm in El Salvador. And he thought I was the craziest person on the planet. <laughs> and now he comes back and memo is his name, Memo Vasquez. And he said, you have the best garden in the valley because you do this. But at first, um, he, it, you know, it was this really you hand bury your compost, and um, so we did. We spread uh, all of our compost, uh, composted material from neighbors. We buried, and we gradually, gradually transformed the soil, um, and a lot of earthworms. Okay, and so. I just have to ask this, like these sort of technical questions, because I'm curious. Sure. So in your kitchen, you collect all food waste, including meat, dairy, oil, the whole thing. Everything. Okay. And you maybe collect it in like a little countertop bucket, like? No, I switched to a plain uh, brown paper craft bag that you get from the grocery store. Yep. Because it will decompose as well. And Everybody in the family is complaining about cleaning the compost bucket. So yeah. I had, so I just put the, I freeze the compost and then we just shove it down the hole and um, cover it. And that way the fox, the bear, um, the raccoon, you know, they don't get into the comp, oh, the dog, our dogs. Yeah. They don't get in the compost. And um, it sounds like a labor intensive process and it is on the front end. But then Mother Nature takes over and you're done. You don't have to spread the compost or right. anything because it's already in the soil. It's already there. How often do you like, so do you dig a different hole every week, every day, every month? Every every week. And I get, uh, unfortunately, and this I hope this doesn't discourage people, but I'm now missing a disc in my back. And um, so, but that was from a horseback riding accident. But uh, anyway, the doctor is like, no more bearing compost. <laughs> so uh, the log, uh, the, the lovely memo um, does it for me. Um, and he comes once a week and he bear, and I, I'll, I'll mark where I think the garden needs. And it's not a very um, obviously scientific process, but you know, all gardeners know their soil and what they think needs amending. And so that's what we do. And we just create these, um, these little piles. And um, that's great. So, so, and how big is your garden? Um, 
Uh, and then I want you to walk us around just a couple of maybe the the spaces that comprise the garden at this point in its, you know, pretty long maturity. The um, flower garden is an acre, which is um, definitely a, a, a labor of love. And what's crazy is it's sort of an addiction now, last year, I, I created a cut flower garden because I have trouble. <laughs> I, get, I don't know if all gardeners have this. I love seeing the, the flowers in situ. And, um, and I hate, you know, I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know, that's marring the landscape. And the bee was just there and I'm cutting the flower. You know, it's, it's, it's all these crazy conversations you have with yourself in the garden. So I, I and then I have a, a, um, a big kitchen garden. Um, called the Kaleyard, which is the Gaelic term for kitchen garden. And that's in another location. And that's probably a quarter of an acre. That's big. Um, and that's definitely a work in progress. That's the newest garden. Um, and I do a lot. I do everything no-till because of the back issues. Um, and that's worked sublimely well. So, you don't, um, I love this. I love it because we do, I, I do have these same conversations of like, I can't cut that many of the, <laughs> the lavender right now or the allium or the buckwheat because the bees are busy using them. And so to have a designated place where you're, you were like, okay, I'm going to cut, I'm going to cut here. And then yeah. everybody else gets to stay. Seems like a good solution <laughs> if you have enough, you know, but even in a little garden, you can um, allocate a small amount for that. And the the garden now you know is is lush in its season uh with the lupin the delphinium the thyme the peonies you have quite a few natives as well the delphinium <laughs> and aconitum being among them and um and i think you have some of the native lupin as well uh you have some really interesting you have come to some interesting agreements with your climate and its other uh, inhabitants, such as the elk. Talk about your decision to kind of not battle where you live, but live with where you live uh, in terms of fencing or irrigation or, um, mm. yeah. The, the um, so nothing, uh, the vegetable garden is fenced. Uh, I have to do that. Um, and I have to. I had to put chicken wire in the raised beds at the bottom so that uh, the voles and the gophers wouldn't come up. Um, but the flower garden is not fenced, and um, we took down the fencing after we moved here because it was uh, disturbing the elk migration, and we didn't want that. But the first winter that I had the, the mature garden, all the elk came down and they just I, I never cut back the garden in the fall that is every landscape person every gardener does that here and I don't because it's a bread basket for wildlife and um, I cut some things to back in the spring but not everything um, and I also like to see the sculptural elements of a winter garden 
So it's, it's also an aesthetic decision. And then the first winter that the elk showed up, it was it looked like a frat party the morning afterwards. It was just <laughs> a mess. They dug everything up. They were sleeping against the one of them was literally sleeping against the kitchen door, and uh, there was obviously there was snow, so they were. Um, and they love echinacea. I don't know if that's why they were passed out, if there was some sort of soporific effect. But anyway, <laughs> I, um, and I thought, oh, Drunken my God, elk. the garden is not going to come back. Boy, and they ate down all my native dogwoods. Everything came back. And not only that, but they fertilized everything. And so they, they hang out every winter. They eat everything down that they like. Um, and then they move on. So and then they they spread their manure and it's a lovely little agreement. And it's really fun to wake up and to the yipping and seeing all the elk and they move on to wherever they go to next. But um so I just gave into it and it turned out to be a fabulous thing. It's it's kind of like when you have a garden and you have dogs, you can't fight the dog trail, you know, that they always make through your garden. And you just have to say, all right, that's going to be, you know, you, you carefully put the flagstone down and the, the dog, of course, creates, it's a, you know, they create their own trail. And you're like, all right, well, there it is. That's the trail. <laughs> so it's the same thing. And, uh, but it's enriched um, the garden and it, it, you know, every garden is a collaboration with the wild inhabitants. So elk are rather big uh, and they, you think that they would totally trash it, and they don't. I mean, to be honest, the deer do come in. They nibble on a few tulips, et cetera. But I plant enough, and I just let that go. Um, but uh, I know that's a little harder for people in smaller spaces to, you, know, you don't want to come out in the morning and have everything raised, which, but so far, so good where we are. This is Cultivating Place. Isa Cato is an artist, an activist, and an intrepid gardener at 8,000 feet outside of Aspen, Colorado. We'll be right back for more of her growing garden life story. Stay with us. The other lesson of the garden that comes up for me in this conversation with Isa is that of balance. Not a thing, but rather an ongoing and ever-present and dynamic act, balancing. For Isa, this comes up in direct relation to place. In Under Western Skies and that interview, she shared with me this idea. Quote, you wake up and you see the mountains here. And there's this invocation to be really vigorous, she says. It is something of a masculine energy or sensibility. It is inspirational and powerful, but a little intimidating too. The mountains are so wild and untamed, and there is great beauty in that, but also a demand for respect. She goes on to say, quote, and I don't want to conquer them. There are constant reminders here in this place that I am not the top of the food chain. Reminders of my place in the universe. And that is good. We damage our planet in so many ways, inadvertently mostly. 
that humility is always good. Making things grow in a world of loss is a great balancing act. End quote. That is gardening, growing life in a world of loss. And it is a great balancing act. Keep it up. We're back now to our conversation with gardener and artist Isa Caddo of Isa Caddo Studios outside of Aspen, Colorado. Isa's gardens were dubbed Mojo Gardens after a beloved dog. We're back now with more from Isa on how her art, her contribution to community, and her garden go hand in hand, and how being human is often a search for connection, and how gardens are instrumental in connecting us to our planet and to one another. You know, I mean, that's one of the adjustments is is learning, you know, to expand our tolerance levels. And I think it's part of the the concept of of learning from our gardens and inclusivity in our gardens um, mm. at, at one at one level. And so that kind of takes me to some of the other ways you actually use your garden as a platform for contributing to the larger world. Um, tell people a little bit about your work with the Writer in Residence program and ACES uh, and, and, and maybe some of your other thoughts on these ideas of, of our gardens being um, fuel and, and food for improving our world generally. Absolutely. So I, I grew up in a family where hospitality was a big deal. You had people over for dinner, you broke bread. Uh, my mother set a beautiful table. And um, so the um, I love that notion is, is definitely part of who I am. And so we live in this beautiful place. And having, uh, I really believe in art, in helping artists and artistic process. I can't, I don't have a, a paint, another painting studio, but we do have an extra uh, apartment. So we work with Aspen Words, which is a literary organization, and they do the hard part of curating the um, writers who come for six months out of the year, and we are the hosts and they have their own apartment. I grow a garden for them. And it's been such a joy because most people actually do not know how to harvest from a garden. And that's been a lovely part of this uh, collaboration. And there's so much, it's great to see someone really enjoy the gardener walking through or taking a break from the writing. Um, but there's another component. I, I think about hospitality in a, different way now because we are in such a divide in this country where we're shouting at each other across the canyon and we need to start inviting more people into our lives that we don't know and um, that can potentially enrich us and there's something about a garden which is it 
it really allows for people to be calm and to just um, feel welcome. I think one of the hardest parts of being human is feeling like you belong. And a garden automatically sets that stage um, where you're walking through it and you're connecting to it. So that's part of very much part of my personal philosophy. And one thing I've been worried about as well is that more and more we look at very important people to change the planet or change our world. And we've got to understand that we have the power. You know, we don't have any control really except in the space in front of us, but we can transform that space. And so that's what I love about sharing about the garden. And one of the best stories about the garden was, you know, it's Aspen, right? So there are lots of snappy people who come into Aspen. And I got this call from a local luminary. And she said, there's someone very, very important who wants to see your garden. Um, they have heard of your garden. And I said, well, great, you know, tell them to come on by. And there was a pause on the phone. And she says, but they don't want anyone there on the property when they come because they're <laughs> very, very, very important. And I said, well, that's a little awkward because I host the writer's residency. I have kids, I have dogs, and I work out of my property. And so I said, you know, this is our home. This is the only home we have. And there was another long pause. And <laughs> she told me, they're very, very important. And I said, well, I'm sorry. I'm not going to vacate my property. But the fact, uh, and, I, and I said, that's on principle, a garden is where you bring people together. So anyway, that was rather funny. Needless to say, the very, very important person never showed up because I wouldn't leave my garden. But <laughs> that that's or kick my kids out or the writer in residence but to me that's where the intersection happens is in these spaces of beauty and joy and cultivation and you know the conversation and connection often follow very very important <laughs> i love it <laughs> Um, and yeah, but I, I know, I know. I was, and, and she was annoyed that I wasn't more curious. I was like, the second you put very, very important, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm out the door. Um, but <laughs> the, so give us, you know, it's, um, it's, uh, we're, we are headed to the summer solstice. This will mm. air, uh, on the other side of that, uh, towards the end of July, right before I'm actually in Aspen with you, uh, I will see the garden, which I can't wait. And I will be speaking, um, as the, the Jessica Caddo, uh, lecturer at Aspen Center for Environmental Studies, which I'm profoundly humbled by um give us a little scene from your garden right now what is in bloom what is bringing you joy what you know maybe what what flowers or or vegetables are you able to harvest right now to offer to your writer in rest residence as part of their creative nutrition 
Lisa. Uh, uh, it's all greens right now. So it's arugula and lettuce. Mm. And I start things in the hoop house. I've got, you know, like a lot of people, uh, a whole uh, system in my basement where I uh, grow all kinds of things. But um, so we're not there yet. The peas are coming along. And um, but by the time you're here, we will have uh, everything bursting forward. So we're still in the beginnings, but uh, even the simple greens, people are so delighted by. And, um, and you know, so we're, we don't look anything like an East Coast garden. We have to wait until July, until, you know, the squashes and the tomatoes. And um, I have a lot of asparagus, so that's delightful to people um, who come here. But, and the strawberries are beginning to come. So uh, that's what's going on in the garden in terms of blooming in the perennial garden. Uh, it's the lupin, the poppies are beginning to come out, the mm. peonies. I have a bit of a peony problem. I just, <laughs> oh, I have a bit of an empire um, that every, I've done successfully peonies by seed. I let them uh, self-propagate. I did So the peonies, I've been, um, peering at them madly and examining, um, but that, that'll come out and they'll come out another week. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they do so, so well. Oh, and the, and it, at, yeah. They do so well at that elevation. Do. Yeah. They do. And, um, and that's just a, a just a joy, yeah. um, to walk out in the morning and cut a peony is just one of the joys of life. One of the great luxuries of life. Yes. Yes. Um, you know, as we come towards the end of our time here and you think about Mojo Gardens named for a beloved dog and you think about your kids growing there and writer in residences, uh, writers in residence creating, you know, works of, of word uh, beauty in, in the world. Um, and very, very important people, notwithstanding, what are your, what are your greatest <laughs> hopes for, uh, and I think you've shared some of them already, but maybe there's more you would like to add of your greatest hopes for the contribution of your garden to a better world generally, Isa. Well, I, I just would love, um, for people to understand that this connection to the soil and the planet and giving back that we all need to be advocates now and that no one is going to fix our planet and our situation for us, that it has to be a joint effort. And I want us to shift from sort of a consuming recreation mindset. One of your podcast talked a little bit about uh, that everything was so transactional and you know there there's no way to bring that into a garden that's the great thing you know you fail you uh, start over uh, there's so much process involved one of the things I love about gardening is 
you step outside of this transactional relationship that we have been so primed to uh, pursue as human beings and really benefits no one. So that is a takeaway that I hope resonates. And there's no way to measure that. You just have to have a lot of faith. And um, I think all gardeners have faith. Thank you for being a guest on the program today, Isa. It's been a, a pleasure to get to know you through several different interview processes uh, for Under Western Skies and now for this. And uh, Mojo Gardens adds a beautiful energy to the world. Thank you so much. Isa Caddo is a fine and textile artist, gardener, and writer. A mother, partner, and activist living in Woody Creek, Colorado. Her multifaceted high-elevation gardens, steeped in generations of family, in connection to community, and in love of place, feed her creativity and her soul. Issa's Mojo Gardens are featured in Under Western Skies, visionary gardens from the Rocky Mountains to the Pacific Coast, on which I collaborated with photographer Caitlin Atkinson, and which was published this past May by Timber Press. On August 11th, I will be joining Issa in Aspen as the Jessica Caddo Dialogues Speaker for the Aspen Center for Environmental Studies, which will be held outside, but space is limited. For all information on how to attend and for the full write-up and photos of Mojo Gardens from Under Western Skies, make sure to check out this week's show notes, which are found every week under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com. Listen in next week when we travel from Aspen to Vail, Colorado, where we're in conversation with both the director and the head of horticulture for the Betty Ford Alpine Gardens, a remarkable high elevation display and research botanical garden They are leaders in the conservation of North American alpine plants and in the international study of alpine plant environments and their responses to our changing climate in crisis. Join us next week. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. It is made possible by listeners just like you at cultivatingplace.com and by support from the American Horticultural Society, celebrating 100 years of learning and growing together. To all of you Cultivating Place sustaining monthly donors who received your mid-year report on the growth and reach of Cultivating Place this past month, thank you for making this work possible. If you find value here, and would like to be a sustaining member of this growing work, follow the pink support button at the top of every page at cultivatingplace.com. Thank you all for helping this garden grow. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler and producer and development director Sarah Bohannon. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. 
Original Cultivating Place theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place, no matter your elevation. I'm Jennifer Jewell.